All right, today we're going to discuss the last uh, two verses in Philippians chapter 3. I'm going to get your Bible open here. Um, As happens regularly when Paul's writing letters, there's these um, times when it, it seems like Paul takes us kind of up to the pinnacle of a point. He, he takes us sort of about as high as, as, our, as our understanding can take us. Um, and these verses happen to be one of, those, one of those parts here in Philippians, I feel like, where the, the, the Holy Spirit has been encouraging us to imitate Paul, to, to follow him, the apostle, and to follow his life of pressing on towards the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. We've been moving in this direction where the text has been telling us that we should walk according to the example that we have in all mature believers who who no longer put confidence in their flesh. Instead, they seek to gain Christ Jesus by following him in faith. Now, last week, we discussed a contrast um, between those who walk as enemies of the cross of Christ um, with their minds set on earthly things, living according to their appetites, um, the, the appetites of their belly, it says their, their lives are consumed with glorying in their shame, which will ultimately lead them into eternal destruction. But the contrast is with those who, 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 uh, who, who live for Christ, who are seeking the Lord, pressing on to the prize and following the example of Paul and the others. Our verses today remind us that those who do such a thing, who live in such a way, who pursue Christ Jesus as their Lord to bring glory to his name in their life, uh, the verses today remind us that, that there's a different destiny, not their end is destruction, but our destination is in heaven. It's to be with Christ where he is. These last two verses in chapter 3 Remind me that my end is not like that. It's not destruction if I endure in pressing on to make Christ my own because he's made me his own. It's not true for just for me, but for all who have longed for and loved his appearing. Now, read these verses with me. I think they're kind of majestic here at the end of chapter 3. In Philippians 3, verse 20, 21. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Lord, I pray that you would just help us here this morning as we look into your word again, that you would teach us and help us and encourage us, Lord. Remind us of these things and what it means to be a citizen of heaven, not to be focused on the things that are going on completely around us, not to be overwhelmed by them, not to be consumed with them, but that we would, that we would really be looking forward to the day when you return, when you come to complete your work as Savior and Lord for us. Lord, I pray that you would encourage us in these things. Help us to see this as the, the end goal of everything that we should be trying to do. Pray for your help in, 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 in these verses this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. So that first verse, Philippians 3.20, says simply at the beginning that our citizenship is in heaven. We need to remind ourselves about something we've talked about at least once, maybe twice, in the book of Philippians here as we've been going through it. Um, Remember the, the, the city of Philippi was actually a Roman colony, and there were citizens there, quite a few of them, quite a few Roman citizens, and they took great pride in their status as a Roman colony in the empire. 
Although Philippi is about 800 miles away from Rome, it was thoroughly Roman. Roman in attitude, Roman in lifestyle, and the way they dressed, even in their architecture. The citizens of Philippi were active in both the political life of the empire, as well as in what, what was the growing cultic worship of the emperor that had begun in the empire. To be a good citizen was to take seriously both the rights and the responsibilities that came with Roman citizenship. And we're, we're, we're hopefully kind of familiar with some of the rights that are afforded to citizens because of the way that Paul used one of his rights in Philippi. Remember what happened to Paul when he was in Philippi the first time, according to the book of Acts? Silas and, and Paul were arrested and beaten and thrown into a jail overnight, where in the middle of the night they were set free and met the, Roman, the Philippian jailer who got saved. And, and the next morning they sent to have Paul and Silas released, but, but Paul utilized his rights as a Roman citizen, which entitled him not to be imprisoned the way he was, and he used it to get the magistrates to come and to acknowledge as much. They, they came and apologized to him that they had him beaten without a trial. That was one of the rights of a Roman citizen was a fair trial um, and not just sort of being grabbed and beaten. Paul also utilized his rights to appeal to Caesar's court, which is how he ends up in Rome where he's writing this letter back to the Philippians from. And so Paul, Paul, Paul recognized some of those rights. Full citizens of Rome actually had those rights, a trial, had the right to, uh, to, to be heard, um, in, in front of a jury in many cases. They also had the right to open and run businesses without heavy taxation. In fact, a, a Roman citizen generally didn't pay any taxes at all, different than our system. Because the Roman Empire was so active in conquering other people, the people that they conquered had to pay taxes so that the citizens were afforded um, the, the, the right to not have to. They had the right to be defended from those foreign uh, armies. They had the right to, to live in relative peace from uprisings and, and such things. But they also had certain responsibilities. Like a, a Roman citizen had the responsibility to serve in the military when they were called upon. They, they were expected to pay homage to the emperor, to obey all the laws of the, the, the empire, to represent Rome in a positive light to foreigners, even to participate in the civic life of their city. That was the Roman expectations of rights and responsibilities and in citizenship. And every country has certain expectations of and privileges afforded to their citizens. I mean, our, our country is no different here in the United States, right? We have the right to vote. All these are hopefullys. We have the right to vote to participate in our government, to enjoy the benefits of things like the highway system and police protection for now. And in exchange, we're expected to fulfill our duties, to pay our taxes, to obey the laws, to serve in the military if required by a draft. All these sort of things go along with citizenship in the U.S. Paul's been writing about the rights and responsibilities of our heavenly citizenship ever since he first mentioned it back in Philippians 1.27. Remember back there, look at Philippians 1.27. It says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. The ESV, in its translation, adds a footnote that indicates that that verse could be translated as, only behave as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Worthy citizens. Act right as a citizen of where? Of what? 
Well, in everything lawful, allowed by the Lord of Rome, but not just Rome, right? Walk as citizens worthy of, of, of your citizenship that's in heaven. Our conduct should always be worthy of the values and the customs and the culture and the, the laws of the kingdom of which we're citizens, which is the kingdom of heaven. That's how we should live, according to those values. Paul proceeds to tell us, after, after he said this, that we should walk as good citizens, he tells us then to live in such humility that, that we would have joy in our unity with one another for the good of the whole Christian community. Christ Jesus is the king of the kingdom, and his name is above every name. And our responsibility is to bow before him in honor and to confess him as our Lord as we live the way he lived in humility. And citizens have to take seriously the duty that we have to follow other mature believers in the scriptures if we're going to be citizens of heaven. Look to the other believers. Look to the mature. Live like they live. Just as citizens of every other realm imitate those they admire to follow them in their footsteps. And now in our text here in Philippians 3.20, Paul's return to this truth that Christians are citizens of heaven. But like Philippi was a colony of citizens in a distant land, we too are a colony of heaven, still distant from heaven itself. Think back to American history. How did the American, the American America start? Thirteen colonies. Colonies of what country? Great Britain, Right. Those who, were, those who lived in the colonies were citizens of Britain. They had British citizenship, somewhat restricted uh, rights and, and privileges down the road. But, but the colonies in America were foreign outposts of Great Britain. And th- those colonists were part of an outpost that was far distant from England itself. Now, similarly, we are citizens of this hev- the heavenly commonwealth already, but we're still distant from it. Awaiting something. Not actually awaiting something, awaiting someone. See how the verse continues there? Philippians 3.20, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. All of the yet-to-be-fulfilled promises in the Scripture are precious promises, but I think there's none quite so great that, that, that we should anticipate with more eagerness than this promise. For believers, the promise of the return of Christ should be the thing that is most to be anticipated, most for us to be excited about, desire for. In Matthew 24, Matthew 26, Mark 13, Mark 14, Revelation 1-7, Jesus said he would come, that he would come back, that he would come on the clouds of heaven so that every eye will see him returning. Paul described it similarly in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 as the Lord himself descending from heaven. And he wrote in Titus uh, 2.13 that this is the blessed hope that we are waiting for, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The blessed hope of the Christian life is that our Lord and Savior will one day return to us from the heavenly land where we already have our citizenship. That he'll come to the colony and the outpost and take us out of here to take us to be with him where he is. That's the blessed hope of the Christian life. Calling it our hope is not because there's any uncertainty to it. It's not that we hope it's true and we're not really sure. Rather, we know that it will happen. The angels told the the apostles as much on the day that Jesus ascended into heaven 
Acts chapter 1. They watched him go up into heaven and then two angels appeared and said, what are you looking at that guy for? What are you watching him for? Acts 1.11, he said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. And there's no hint of doubt in statements like that about, gee, I hope Jesus is going to come back. No, he's coming back. Just like he left. He'll be back from heaven. He'll, he'll descend one day. And in that certainty is the blessing of our faith. Our faith, our trust in that truth, is a blessed hope. There's no need for us to be anxious about what's going to go on in this world because we know that Jesus will ultimately come back from heaven. We don't know when, so we wait with eagerness. It's not the kind of waiting that's inactive or impatient. Rather, Paul told us in in verses 12 and 13 that, that while we're waiting, we need to press on, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Because we we know this blessed hope. What is it that lies ahead that we're straining forward towards? What is that prize of the upward call of God? Jesus Christ is the prize. He's the prize. He will come to us from heaven. Jesus was explicit about the promise of his personal return to the apostles just before he was arrested. In the upper room, before they went out to the garden, the night that he was arrested, In John 14, 1 through 3, Jesus told them, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to be with me to myself that where I am you also may be. I will come again, Jesus said, for the specific purpose of taking us to be with him where he is in heaven. And in Mark chapter 13, verse 27, he said that when he comes, he'll send out the angels and gather his elect from the four winds of the earth, from the ends of the earth and to the ends of heaven, everywhere, all over. He'll gather all of us to be with him. We're only just waiting for the return of our king to join him in his kingdom. And who is this Jesus Christ whom we are awaiting? The text here in verse 20 says that we await a Savior. Not really a Savior, but the Savior. Paul actually rarely used this title in what he wrote. In fact, Paul never used the title Savior in any of his letters until he wrote to the Ephesians. Chronologically, it was the first time that he used the title Savior and attached it to Jesus in in, um, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 23. Incidentally, he wrote to the Ephesians from that same Roman prison, maybe just months before he writes this to the Philippians. But this was never something that, that Paul really ever used in his letters until way late in his life, until he was in that prison in Rome. It's probably because of this, by the time he's in prison in Rome, the emperor worship cult had taken hold in many regions of of the empire, and it was nowhere more obvious than in Rome itself, where the emperor was declared to be a god, and he was expected to be worshipped. The statement of Roman citizenship was, Caesar is lord. Well, it wasn't just that he was Lord. They actually had coins, and on the coins were imprinted the image of the emperor, and around the the edges of the coins were printed two Greek words. 
Soter and Kyrios, Savior and Lord. Savior and Lord. Paul, by this time, he's in, Rome, in prison in Rome, is surely seeing this, and it's something kind of developing, something relatively new in the empire, and it was really taking hold. And Paul, in effect, is essentially addressing those things directly, right? About Savior and Lord. Who's really the Savior? Who's really the Lord? The Roman citizens had been taught to call the emperor Savior, expecting that he would personally deliver them from all the threats, from the barbarians to the weather, everything. Since he's a deity, he's going to save them from all of these things. And of course, that's nonsense. Right? A, a mere political leader or an economic military leader of a country is totally incapable of being a savior against all the threats of the world. But it's not just the threats of the world that we've got to be concerned about. There's more, right? One who has their mind set on earthly things, like the emperor, would never be sufficient to save us from the wrath of God against our sins. He can by no means be the actual savior, the one that we really need to provide eternal security and salvation. Oh, maybe he can lead the army in such a way that they defeat some of the marauding hordes for a while, but even that didn't last forever in Rome. The salvation that we need, however, is only a salvation that can be provided by the Savior who's returning from heaven, who's gone ahead of us there to secure our deliverance and, and ensure our passage into the kingdom of God. Jesus is the only one who can do that. He's the only Savior in that sense, truly. Now, like I said, it wasn't just that those, the culture around them was learning and being taught to refer to the emperor as Savior, who is also Lord. And those earliest generations of Christians were often tested by that title. You see it there in, in Philippians 3.20. We are awaiting a Savior, the Lord Christ Jesus. The Lord. This was the test to see if you would escape from persecution or martyrdom or whether you would be thrown into the Colosseum to be attacked and eaten by the lions or forced to fight the gladiators or stuck on a pole and lit on fire, all kinds of things they did to Christians back then. It boiled down to this. Say Caesar is Lord and mean it. That was the test. That was the demand to confess that Caesar is Lord, but the Christians would refuse because there's only one Lord. He's the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, of course, we're, submit, we're supposed to submit. We're, we're required to submit to the government that God's ordained over us as our authority, according to Romans 13. But our obedience can only be insofar as their demands do not violate the commands of God. Right? They tell us that, that we do something forbidden in the Bible, we must refuse. They tell us to stop doing things required by God, and we have to disobey them. Because in order to obey God, we must disobey man in those cases. Confessing Caesar as Lord was a bridge too far. Some might argue that it's just words. You don't have to believe them, but words matter. <laughs> right? And the Christians were convinced about this. Only the Savior whom we await from heaven is worthy of that ultimate pledge of allegiance as our Lord. And we too, in our day, we have to recognize that he's Lord. He's the Lord who's subjecting all things to himself. That's the last phrase in verse 21 there, Philippians 3.21, that he has power to enable 
himself to subject all things to himself. And that's what, what Jesus has done, isn't it? Jesus has already defeated all of the enemies. He's merely waiting for all of them to be made his footstool. We can never bow down to those enemies that Jesus has already defeated. The ones that he's putting into subjection under himself. We cannot choose to, to treat them as Lord instead of him. We do owe honor where honor is due, but only Christ himself is worthy of the honor of the titles of Savior and Lord. And Paul emphasizes that so clearly in this verse. We must never give those titles to anyone or anything else, not in our words and certainly not by our actions. I mean, guarding against this is something we have to maintain with all diligence so that we don't become enemies of the cross. By placing our allegiance here above the allegiance that we're supposed to have as citizens of heaven. One day our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, will come back from there. You know what he's going to do when he gets here? Verse 21 tells us. He says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him to even to subject all things to himself. Romans 8 tells us that right now we groan inwardly under the weight and the corruption of sin as we eagerly wait for the redemption of our bodies that will happen when Jesus comes from heaven to transform us. Now that's not merely our physical body of muscle and bone that has to be made new. It's, it's much deeper than just the tissue of your physical flesh. It's everything about your sinful self that has to be transformed, that will be transformed at his coming. It's the, the trans, transformation from our present lowly bodies to be remade, to be like the glorious body of Christ Jesus after he is resurrected. Paul, Paul really wrote some of the most spectacular explanations and descriptions of this in 1, uh, 1 Corinthians 15. It will be here for a minute. So turn your Bible over here. 1 Corinthians 15. I want you to start reading this with me in, in verse 40. Listen to Paul's description of the transformation. 1 Corinthians 15, 40. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly one is one kind and the glory of the earthly is of another. There's one glory of the sun and another glory of the moon and another glory for the stars. For star differs from star in glory. And so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It's sown in dishonor and it is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness, but raised in power. It's sown a natural body, but it's raised a spiritual body. If there's a natural body, there's also a spiritual one. And tell me, do you understand what I just read? At best, the answer is not fully. <laughs> kind of. I mean, I can comprehend some of the words, but there's still a mystery that's to be revealed when Christ Jesus returns. But we know this. We know this much about it, that our new bodies will be imperishable. Once you've been transformed by Christ in glorification, it will be impossible for you to ever perish again. And that imperishable body will be glorious, it says, forever testifying to the goodness of your Savior who has transformed you. You'll have power to never be subject to weakness again. No pain, no suffering. 
There won't be any physical pain, no emotional anguish, no more anxiety or fear or tiredness. No more sin. And it's not only sinlessness, but it's to be recreated so that you are impervious even to the temptations of sin. It's a spiritual body like Christ's glorious body, recognizable, but perfected for eternity. Paul wrote further here in the chapter about, about the transformation that's coming starting in verse 50. Same chapter, 1 Corinthians 15, 50. He says, I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable in- inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and the mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? And the unwritten answer is, Gone. (laughs) That's where death is. Because mortality will have been swallowed up by immortality. Now some Christians have already died. Their physical bodies have decomposed. But when Christ returns and that last trumpet blast summons them out of the grave, both the living and the dead will be reassembled and then changed in a split second. We'll all be transformed. How long will it take? However long a twinkling of an eye is. I think that's supposed to mean a real quick in the twinkling of an eye we'll be transformed from the lowly body we know now to the glorious body that's like his that's the final defeat of death and it's swallowed up by life we who are mortal will put on immortality so that we can finally inherit the kingdom of God and fully enjoy all the rights and benefits of the citizenship that we've been given now You realize that you don't have all of the rights and benefits yet of your heavenly citizenship. We know some measure of those rights now. We have access to the throne of grace through prayer. We have the word of God made living by the indwelling spirit. We have the blessing and the benefit of fellowship with fellow pilgrims on the way to the celestial city. But those are small tokens in comparison to the reality that will be ours. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says that right now we only see these things dimly as in a mirror. But when Christ returns, we'll know him face to face, which is going to require that we be transformed to be made like him. The word here in Philippians 3.21 that's translated in the ESV as transform is a compound Greek word, metaschismatizo, 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 I have to think about it. Meta is the first part. It, it, the, the word used here, the Greek word meta, um, means to change something, like metamorphosis. Is a change in form, like when a caterpillar goes into the cocoon and comes out a butterfly. It's actually the same creature. Same DNA. It's only just changed its form. 
Our transformation is not a metamorphosis, but a metaschematosis. The second part of that compound word is schematizo. It's a variation of the word schema, from which we get our English word schematic. A schematic is a plan or a design. It's, it's, it's the blueprints. And it's not just the blueprints of the paper. It's the design that goes into it is the schematic. When Christ returns, we're going to get re-schematicked, redesigned at the core. It's not just a cosmetic change that we're going to go through, but a total change into a whole new spiritual body, fully redesigned to be with the Lord for eternity, improved so that we can live in his holy heaven with him. It's quite a redesign from where we are now. Perfected and glorified on the outside, imperishable imperishable and without weakness, and perfected and glorified on the inside, finally and fully victorious over all the corruption of our sin as we've all known it to be. The Lord will use the power of his own resurrection to transform us. That's the power that enabled him to subject all things to himself. Paul's already told us about that in chapter 2, where Jesus became a servant. He, he, he left behind heaven and, and came as a man, obedient to death, even death on a cross. And then what happened? Christ was resurrected and God highly exalted him, such that what? Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he's Lord above all. Everything is going under subjection to him. Because of his resurrection. And the fact of his resurrection, that is the basis for our confidence that we have in these verses today about our citizenship and about the certainty of the return of Christ. We know it's certain because Jesus is alive and well in heaven. And because he lives, he'll return as he promised. And when he returns, we know that we will live even as he does. And because he was transformed in his resurrection, he'll use that same power in you and me to transform us when he comes as both Savior and Lord. We will be changed in the twinkling of an eye into something not just different in form, but different in design, in essence. This is good news. We're not stuck forever in this lowly state. One day we'll be redesigned, new and improved, to be just like him. To this we should exclaim, come Lord Jesus, come. Right? I mean, Christians historically have been excited about that, right? Amen, right? Come Lord, that's what we want. But I have to ask, is that your reaction today? I mean, does this all sound amazingly good to you? Are you happy to have your citizenship in heaven? Do you look forward to the coming of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you eagerly awaiting your own transformation to be like him? I mean, I have to ask because there are many who who don't really want that. They're comfortable right where they are. Not really ready for the Lord to come back just yet. They haven't done everything that they want to do in this world. Truth be told, there's many who are enjoying their sin too much right now. They, they, and they, they don't really want it all to come to an end anytime soon. I mean, there are many maybe who've, in that group who have grown weary of the consequences of their sin. 
and they're sort of ready for their suffering to be over, but they don't really fully believe that they've gotten everything out of life that they want just yet. They're not really excited about Jesus coming to end it all. And we have to, each of us have to seriously consider this, if I'm like this in any way. Is there something or someone that makes you hope that Jesus waits a few more years before coming back? might not even be something outrightly sinful. I mean, it doesn't necessarily have to be sinful. Are you, are you waiting for that kid to get married, you know, see, see the grandkids grow up, to get one more trip to Hershey Land or whatever we were talking about this morning, you know, eat, eat, eat one more dinner like this, hang out with something like that, whatever it is. Do you have anything like that? It's something that would demonstrate that your mind is actually set on earthly things in such a way that you're not really looking forward to Christ's return with the, the most highest you know, amount of excitement. Are you too busy enjoying your earthly citizenship to be really devoted to Christ as a citizen of heaven now? I, I can't say that you're necessarily an enemy of the cross, if you can see that in yourself, but your attachments to the people and the things of this world should be concerning. I do need to warn you that you need to rethink your priorities because your blessed hope should not be whatever's in this life. Your joyful anticipation should be in the return of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you're not excited about all of this, it might mean that you need to do more than just rethink some of your priorities. It might mean that you're really not a Christian at all. I mean, Paul warned about this in 1 Corinthians 15, where we've been reading. Look at verse, uh, verse 19, where Paul says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. You see, there are some who are Christians for this life only. They go to church. They believe in God. But he doesn't really have any effect in their lives. They aren't living for him. They're not living for eternity. They're just living for this life and have a little bit of Jesus on the side, just enough to where they feel like they're confident that hopefully, confident that hopefully he'll save them at the end. The end. Hopefully, hopefully it's enough that I'll get to heaven. If that's you, then you are of all people most to be pitied because you're really not living for the Lord. I mean, you need to hear the command at the end of the chapter. In, in, in 1 Corinthians 15, the last verse, verse 58, it says, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing in, in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Now, that doesn't mean that you have to become a preacher or something. That's not the only labor that's ever done in the Lord. Get that, get that thought out of your head. The work that's done for the Lord is literally every facet of your life. From the job that you have to the relationships you enjoy, the things you do with friends, family, the way that you react to politics and all the rest of it. Everything that's going on. How you use your time, where you spend your money. Every facet of your life for a Christian is to be work done for the Lord. Because he told us to. He gave us the principle of how to do it. And we do it to please him. Whatever he's given you to do in your day-to-day -day life, you have to start living for the Lord in that thing. Trusting in this, that what labor you're doing in the Lord, even if it's not known, not visible, even if you can't quite put your finger on it, what it is, it's not in vain. 
And you must always be abounding in that work for the Lord. Not up and down, but steadfastly trusting in him. Immovable when the struggle and difficulties start pounding on you. If if that's you and you've never done that, you need to become a citizen of heaven by faith in Christ Jesus. That the citizenship is being offered. It may not fix all your problems today. This life is full of trouble for each of us. But it's the only way that you'll have the joy of awaiting your Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will one day come back from heaven to gather all those who are his. And when he comes, then you'll be transformed. Any other life is a life destined for destruction. We all need to set our minds on things above, where Christ is in heaven. A Christian's not just someone who says they believe in the Bible. A Christian is a citizen of heaven who presses on to to do what they're supposed to as a citizen, to live for the Lord with maximum effort now. We have to know the blessed hope that one day our Savior and our Lord will come from our homeland in heaven to transform us to be like him and to take us to be with him where he is. In Colossians 3, 4, this simple statement appears. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. The presupposition is that Christ is your life. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. If Christ is not your life now, you're destined for destruction. But... For those of us who make Christ our life now, when he appears, then our mortal bodies will be put put on the immortality of eternal life. And you and I will finally be home to enjoy all of the benefits of our citizenship in heaven with Jesus. To this we should say, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Lord, I thank you for the time together in your word. I thank you. I thank you for giving us passages like this that... Go, go so far beyond what we can truly understand, but give us every reason to hope and to trust in the, the, the truthfulness of your word. Give us every reason to see that our blessed hope, our most prized anticipation, our eager expectations are that one day, may it be soon, Lord, one day you will return and you'll transform us. You'll set us free from from, from our imprisonment, really, to our flesh. I thank you that you've given us a citizenship now, and we have benefits of it now. Help us to live in such a way that we take seriously the responsibilities of that citizenship now, that, that, that we might fully receive and enjoy all the great benefits of the future of eternity with you, Lord. Come back, swallow up the mortality and immortality, defeat death, and give us life, I pray. Jesus name amen